You can turn with me again to John 17. Uh, John 17, we're going to look at the last few verses here. Uh, Jesus' words uh, in this section are, are too great for, for to even be communicated. It's overwhelming. So uh, what a precious passage it is. As I was reading it earlier, you probably were thinking, wow, that's, it's a little confusing too. Lots of really short phrases and clauses and it moves from one to the other and I think I get the main idea, and so I, I hope I can serve you, uh, having wrestled with this passage a little bit this week, and uh, just thinking through the glories of Jesus' prayer uh, for us, his people. Let me pray, um, and then uh, we'll look at this passage together. Would you join me in prayer? Your love truly is abounding. And it is great, and we hear your love even in the heartbeat of Jesus for us, his disciples, even in this prayer. And so we pray that you would encourage us through this passage. Help us to love what you love and pursue what you desire, uh, even as we are just encouraged uh, this, this, this morning. And so we pray that you'd speak to us now through your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is, what's the biggest prayer you've ever prayed? The biggest prayer you've ever prayed. And, and by that, I have something particular in mind. What's the longest term prayer you've ever prayed? Like future-oriented prayer you've ever prayed? Now, think about it. I mean it. The furthest in the, what's the biggest kind of further-focused prayer you've ever prayed? Not flippantly, but, but in faith prayed, asked the Lord for. Maybe, I don't know, I, you, can, you can think through your answer here. Uh, one of, one of the, the brothers uh, in the faith that I look up to the most, his name is J.D. Crowley. He's a missionary in Cambodia. I had opportunity to visit him when I was in my early 20s, had a formative impact on me then, and has continued to through some visits and contact, but then through his writings as well. And uh, he wrote this, and I'll just read this. Uh, speaking of his wife and him, his, her, his wife's name is Kim, uh, he wrote this about 10 years ago. This is what he wrote. For around 30 years, Kim and I have prayed for our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and their spouses, often during a time of fasting and prayer, during Tuesday or Wednesday lunch hour. Besides praying for individual requests as needs arose, we have prayed the same general requests below week after week, year after year, and, we've co- and we're constantly amazed at how God faithfully answers. The more we pray, the more we receive. God has given us enough faith to believe, to answer these requests to the fourth generation, that is, our great-grandchildren. For the generations beyond that, it's up to our kids and grandkids to keep their tradition. And then he lists 39 specific requests that they have been praying for their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and their spouses now for almost 40 years. This is generational prayer. You get the image. Generational prayer. Prayer for those you're not going to meet or you won't meet unless you have a very long life. What an example of intentional prayer. It's been encouraging to me, J.D.'s example of intentional prayer. If you're a believer here this morning, Jesus 
on the night before the cross, prayed for you. That's generational prayer. He prayed for you. That's a long horizon. Look at verse 20 again. John 17, verse 20. So this is Jesus speaking, but Jesus is praying now. So he's addressing the Father. He's prayed kind of for himself, for the 11, and now, last section, he prays for those. Well, we'll look at it. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that is for the 11 only, but also for those who will believe in me, that is those who will believe in Jesus, through there, that is through the 11, through the apostles' word. Jesus ends his prayer thinking, not of the cross, not of the apostles, but of those, not, not even of those who would read in the book of Acts, but of, but of those who will believe in him. Through the word of God, through the apostles' word, he's praying for us. It's not simply trusting the Lord, we might say, for one or two or even three generations, but with every generation. We speak about this sometimes. Uh, maybe you know a little bit about uh, your background, and if we sat down and talk, maybe you know the answer to this, maybe you don't. I'm a third-generation Christian. Maybe you know that kind of language, right? So, I don't know that any of my great-grandparents were believers, but my grandparents, three out of the four, came to faith in Christ. And in the Lord's kindness, my parents came to faith in Christ. And I heard the gospel at a young age. And by God's grace, I've come to faith in Christ. So, I'm a third-generation Christian. What a benefit that has been to my life. Generational faith. Spiritually, I don't know what generation I am. Someone shared the gospel with my grandparents. And I don't even know their names. And someone shared the gospel with them. And I don't know their names. But I know Jesus was praying for me. On the night before the cross... J.D. has 39 specific requests for future generations. You can look it up, or if you ask me for it, I can send you the link where it's written down there. What, what is Jesus' prayer? What are his requests for future spiritual, we could say, generations? For those who would believe as a result of God's word, the apostles' teaching. What, is the, what are the desires of Jesus' heart for you and for me? What does Jesus want for us? These final words of this passage, these final words of this series from John 14 through 17, we're going to see four desires from the heart of the Savior for you, for me. And the first is the longest. It's the one we'll spend the most time on. It comes from verses 20 through 23, and it's this. We would be one. That is Jesus' desire for us, that we would be one. He prays for unity. Look look again at verse 21. That they may all be one. Verse 22. That they may be one. Verse 23. That they may become perfectly one. As we were reading, maybe, maybe it caught your ear that this unity or this oneness, we might say, is analogous to the unity within the Trinity within the Godhead. So look again at verse 21. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. 
Or verse 23, even as we are one, I in them and you in me. So the Father and Son, distinct persons, yet they are one. There is one God. So believers, Jesus prays, are to be one, to be in unity, even though we are distinct individuals. What a powerful analogy of the, the unity that Jesus desires for his people. It's really striking. Could he have taken any more weighty an example than the persons of the Godhead in terms of unity? Jesus then turns to love. The end of verse 23. So that the world may know that you loved them even as you loved me. D.A. Carson put it this way. He prays that believers may richly share what he calls the wealth of love that tie the Father and the Son together. That we might share in the love between the Father and the Son, the eternal love between God the Father and God the Son overflows, as it were, towards us believers, those to whom the Father has given to the Son. Believers are in one in purpose, one in love, even as Jesus prays we would be in the Father, in the Son, united to the vine by faith. Again, these are big prayers. These are things that we don't normally pray like this, right? That we would be united and then look around for examples. And he goes to the triune Godhead and the three persons of the Trinity, what is this unity that Jesus prays for here? I think we need some clarity on it. Again, you see it in verse 21, verse 22, verse 23. May all be one, may be one, may become perfectly one. I think this unity is, we could say doctrinal or maybe perhaps better spiritual. We've already seen based on verse 20 that I think it's generational. I think we could also say that it's not primarily organizational. I use that word carefully. Let me explain a little bit by what I mean. Many well-meaning Christians, I think, miss the nature of Jesus's prayer here. That it can be generational. So I think Jesus is speaking, at least, at least in part, certainly includes the unity that I would have with Bible-believing, gospel-loving brothers and sisters from church history. Or the unity that I would have spiritually with, with believers in, in Africa or Asia or South America, other countries. Often, well-meaning Christians assume it's primarily organizational. So things will be said like this. If only we could get all the Christians in America together. If only we could get all the Christians in Michigan. If only we could get all the Christians in Lapeer County to work together, pray together, gather together, fund this or that together. Then Jesus' prayer will be answered. So parachurch or interdenominational or some kind of institutional unity is assumed. So if only the Presbyterians would start working with the Methodists. Or fill in your denomination. What, is, what does that impulse get right there's something good there, isn't there? And I think we, as separatists, might say, okay, well, there is something really good there, isn't there? Look at 
the end of uh, verse 21 and the end of verse 23. Jesus clearly intends that the unity amongst his disciples would be observable. That you'd be able to see it so that the world may believe, so that the world may see and know that you sent me. So it's spiritual, it's generational, but it also is observable. It's not just kind of this spiritual unity that exists, but never looks like anything. What is that impulse? If only all the Christians in America would pray together, work together, da, da, da. What does it often miss? I think the desire to all work together almost always ends up with lowest common denominator faith. It's reduced and reduced and reduced. The, the truth held in common is just less and less and less in order to get everyone in the tent, right? Everyone in, in the room so that there's more and more cooperation. So a godly desire for unity undercuts any godly desire for doctrinal purity. The doctrine held in common is kind of whittled down and whittled down. And in the end, it feels like you have unity for what? For unity's sake. Say, okay, Pastor Ross, you're really good at telling us what Jesus doesn't mean. What does he mean? What does this look like then? It's easy to say, well, it's not that, and it's not that, and I hope it's not that, and I don't think he means that. Well, what does he mean? One more clarification comment. I think we have to have an eye towards the New Testament's teaching regarding faithfulness, doctrinal faithfulness. So we can't pit unity against purity. So any biblical unity has to be around the pure doctrine of God's word, or it's not real unity. It's just gathering people in a room that are all happy to wear the hat Christian. There's got to be some truth at the heart of it. This church uh, stands in a tradition called fundamentalism, or known as fundamentalism. Now, that word has been used in the last 20 years to describe Muslims and all sorts of other extremists, we might say. It's almost become interchangeable with the word extremist. That's not how I'm using it here. It's a historic term. So the pure truth of God's word needs to be identified over and against the challenges of, of liberalism or those who would call into question the truths of God's word. And this pure truth, these pure truths were called historically the fundamentals. These are the fundamental truths. You can't deny these things and, and still be a Christian. And, and churches like ours were willing to actually separate from error in order to preserve the truth. So they weren't trying to be lead to disunity, but to preserve true unity. Do you see? So this church uh, was willing to leave its denomination in 1928. We were part of the Northern Baptist Convention. We are not any longer part of the Northern Baptist Convention. Of course, that convention no longer exists, at least in that name. But we didn't leave to go nowhere. We weren't saying, okay, you know what true faithfulness is? It's an island of one, Right? We're going to stand on this island by ourselves. And aren't we glad we're the only one on the island? No, no, that's not at all. Our church very wisely in the 1930s, just a few years later, gathered with a lot of other churches seeking to preserve the unity, the pure doctrine of God's word, gathered with other churches to associate together, to work together, right? So we're in the general association of regular Baptist churches. 
perfect? No. But an effort to gather around these fundamental truths and preserve them generationally? Yes. Yes. So the goal isn't to be on an island by ourselves and have Elijah syndrome. I only I am left. No, not at all. The goal is to say, no, we want to stand with the truth of God's word. In order to do that, there will be times where we'll have to separate from other so-called Christians for the truth. But we want to gather. We want there to be a doctrine around which we are united. So where do we find unity that's spiritual or doctrinal, that's generational, but also observable, that's also visible? Well, I think it's within the local church. Such local church unity, it's not uniformity. United around our our statement of faith, we have unity, but we're not demanding uniformity. There's going to be personal and practical differences within our church. If you've been here any amount of time, you've felt that. You can reference Pastor Kevin's series on the conscience for some great examples. The differences within our church actually display the beauty of the unity. Hmm. If it was uniformity, it wouldn't hold up and display the unity that we have in the gospel as clearly. It isn't a sub-subculture unity that we have. No, it's a spiritual, doctrinal, generational, intergenerational, young, old, in a local church. It's visible. To which I think you should ask, well, Pastor Ross, do do you think that Jesus is only thinking about the local church when he writes this? I read this passage, I don't think local church. No, I don't, think, I don't think so. But I do think the local church is primarily where we see this unity today. It's where it's observable. It's what Jesus is praying for, where it's seen primarily. It's where we practically pursue the unity that Jesus prays for, that is doctrinal and generational and, and visible in the local church. Look again at verse 23. He uses this interesting phrase. I've read it several times. That they may become perfectly one. So this is unity that believers can pursue. They can mature into. We could grow into. At least in terms of our experience. We can grow into this. So Paul can write to the believers in Ephesus and say. All right church in Ephesus. I myself a prisoner of the Lord. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then, listen, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we should be eager as believers in this local church to maintain this unity. If you want to reflect further on how you can do that, there's a resource in your bulletin listed. It's, a, it's an article. You can find it online very easily. Very encouraging on that point. But why? Why should we pursue such unity? Jesus gives us a reason, and it may not be the one that first comes to our mind. Why is the unity of believers so important? Look again at verse 21, the very end. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Look at the end of verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. So the church's testimony is tied to the church's unity. Divisive church lies about God's character, about God himself. 
It isn't just that, you know, a divisive church is hard to stay in, and that's true. It's failing to tell the truth about the unity of the Father and the Son. But a united church, one in the truth, one in purpose, is a, a godly church, right? Its testimony is going to be bright. Now, no local church can claim the complete absence of interpersonal conflict. Not at all. Not us. But every church should be marked by the presence of forgiveness and grace and long-suffering and reconciliation. That's why, what Jesus was praying for. That's what we can pursue. May we as a church grow in our unity, grow in our maturity around pure truth, the truths of God's word. May we reach out, overflow to other like-minded churches that share that pure truth with us, all with the goal of telling the truth about God to a lost world. That's the first of Jesus' requests, desires for us as we hear the Savior's heart in these final verses. We have three more, and they're a bit shorter, quite a bit shorter. Point number two, we would see his glory. That's Jesus' desire as he prays for us. Jesus' heart is that all whom the Father have given him would be with him. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. No more separation. No more anticipation. No more longing. Finally, with me where I am. That's his desire. Remember how the passage began, how the series began back in the beginning of chapter 14. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Do you see this? It began with, man, I I want my people to be with me. It ends with Jesus' heart and his prayer. I want them to be with me. Chapter 14, verse verse 3. Chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus uses the same words in both. To be with his people. Why? Why does Jesus want to be with his people? I can think of all sorts of reasons why I want to be with Jesus. That's an easy category for me to fill in. Perfect peace. No more sin. No more sadness. I could go on. But why does Jesus long to be with his people? Look at the second half of verse 24. To see my glory. Jesus wants us to be with him so that we can see his glory. That's not how I would have finished the sentence. But that's Jesus' desire. Jesus has already displayed his glory in this gospel, in particular through various signs. Jesus is about to display his glory through the cross and the resurrection. Jesus allows us, even today, to get glimpses of his glory. So Paul can talk about this in 2 Corinthians 3. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. But we, not them then, not us now, we are not witnesses to his unveiled beauty and splendor, his pre-incarnate glory. We see him despised and rejected and maligned and attacked. We don't see the glory he enjoyed with the Father before the world was created. But beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will be there, where? With him forever. And we will see him in the splendor of his unveiled beauty forever. Heaven will be glorious because Jesus is glorious. That's what John says in Revelation 21. He records this loud voice from the throne of heaven. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And then John records... A little later, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. With him, that's his desire for us, with him, to see him in all his glory. We'll be with the lamb where he is, and we'll see him in his glory. And there will be no sun. He will be all the light that we need forever. That is Jesus' desire for you, that you would see him in his full glory. Third, for third desire of Christ as he prays is the Father's love would dwell in us. We see this in verse 25 and the first part of verse 26. That the Father's love would dwell in us. Jesus again affirms that it's his disciples who, 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 uh, who know who Jesus is as the one sent from the Father. Look at verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these, that is, these disciples who will believe, know that you have sent me. He's revealed the Father. He'll continue to reveal the Father. You see this in verse 26. This leads to the final two desires. The Father's love would dwell in us that he himself would dwell in us. Look at, the, look at verse 26. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus desires that the Father's love would dwell in us. Amazing. And note this, it's the love with which the Father loved his Son. Wow. What does this mean? This means the Father doesn't love you with some sort of grade B love, some sort of lesser love. The Father has eternally loved the Son, and that love overflows for those whom he has given the Son. I've heard Christians say that they believe God loves them, but they're not so sure that God likes them. And when I do hear that, and I've heard it several times, I try to understand what they mean. Why, why might they feel that way? But I also try to show them that God doesn't love like that. 
The fullest expression of his love for us is seen on the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So on the cross, we see that God loves us and you and me and, and, and likes us. Right? Jesus' prayer here at the end shows us that it's the very same love that the Father has for the Son that he, he now shows towards us. So if the Father can't love his Son but not really like him, it, not, it can't be true for us either. We can be certain he loves and likes all of his children fully and finally with the very same love that has eternally existed between the Father and the Son. So the Father doesn't really love Jesus and sort of love you. His love is always grade A. And so he loves you with the highest love and the purest love and the best love, his love. And so Jesus desires that very same love to dwell in us, to take up residence in our lives. God's love for the Son is finding a residency in the lives, in the hearts of believers. Every believer prays God, which leads to the final point. Final desire of Christ is that he, Christ himself, will dwell in us. This is the very end of our passage, the very end of the prayer. And I in them. He echoes a theme that we've seen earlier in his teaching. Back in chapter 14, we observe that true followers will experience the love and presence of God, the Father, and God, the Son. And now he prays it. There is one God who exists in three distinct persons. As we noted before, the Father didn't die on the cross. The Spirit wasn't eternally begotten of the Father. Yet there is one God. And as believers are indwelt by the Spirit, we experience, we know the indwelling of the Father and the Son. The dwelling presence of Christ in the lives of believers isn't just something we kind of check off. It's the Savior's desire that we would hear it and be comforted by it. How did Jesus begin way back in chapter 14? Look back at chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus began, let not your hearts be troubled. And then Jesus spends four chapters comforting the hearts of his disciples with rich teaching on the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God is, the triune God is our comfort. As a believer, brothers and sisters, the very same love of the Father for the Son dwells in you. As a believer, the promised Spirit is with you forever. As a believer, Jesus has taken up residence in you. God doesn't orphan his children, none of them, never alone. He sends a helper faithful to guard and guide us as his children. You're loved by the Father and you are loved by the Son, both making their residence in you, making their presence known by the Spirit. So let not your hearts be troubled. Though Jesus is leaving and persecution is coming, his spirit is coming as well. And so is the God of comfort in his triune glory. So we hear the heart of the Savior praying for us. 
Brothers and sisters, he is for you, and he tells you that. And he made sure it was recorded so you can hear it again this morning. He is with you, and he is in you. In the face of persecution, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of the challenges of this week and the troubling in our hearts, Jesus Christ is our vine. He is our life. He is the only way. And so he is the only source of lasting comfort. So look to him. Look to him again and again. Look to him in salvation. Look to him in discipleship. Look to him forever. He is our only hope and true source of joy and comfort. I'm going to close us in prayer, and then we will respond in song. As you see in your bulletin, uh, Lord willing, next week we are going to start a new series. This will be a five-week series through the book of Leviticus. Now, if you've read the book of Leviticus, you're probably intrigued as to how this is going to go. But we are going to spend five weeks in the book of Leviticus. I want to encourage you to be reading the book of Leviticus in preparation. So this next week, we're going to look at the sacrifices laid out in Leviticus 1 through 7. And then in two weeks, uh, Ben Edwards will be with us as a guest speaker. And then uh, the next four weeks, we will finish out the book of Leviticus uh, before we head into the holiday season together. Let me pray, uh, and then we'll continue in song. Father God, we are grateful for the opportunity that we have been given to not only know that you're praying for us, but to be able to listen in, to have our ear to the wall as Jesus kneels and prays in the other room, as it were, so we can hear his heart for us and hear your desires for your people, that we would be one, that we would know your presence, that we would know your love, that we would know that Christ himself has not left us, but taken up residence in us. That we would know the joy and the comfort of being united to Christ by faith. So help us to remain there. There's so much involved at times in the Christian life. We can think of all of Scripture and all the expectations, and we can get overwhelmed. We can think, okay, we got to get busy and we can move on from the gospel. But Father, we pray that we never would. That we would take it with us every day, reminded of Christ, relying on Christ, grateful for Christ. Father, we thank you that you have pursued us in love and that that pursuit is irrevocable. There's nothing that can separate us from your love. Thank you that, that that love is displayed on the cross and affirmed by your spirit. Help us not to doubt, to doubt your promises. Help us not to doubt your word. Help us to live by faith and find true and lasting comfort in Christ alone, in whose name we pray. Amen. Jeff.